This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., we're delighted to welcome a special guest, Deborah Lapravot, a pioneer and principal leader addressing global corruption and strengthening the rule of law. Deborah had a 20-year career with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Deborah served as a supervisory special agent on the International Corruption Unit at FBI headquarters and was instrumental in initiating the FBI's kleptocracy program. Deborah traced and seized more than $1 billion from corrupt officials abroad. Deborah has spent the past 23 years working on international corruption investigations. Deborah is also a forensic scientist and spent several years on the FBI's evidence response team unit at the FBI lab. Indeed, it is our great honor to welcome you back to America's Roundtable. Good morning, Deborah. Welcome, Deborah. Hello, so nice to be back and joining you two. Deborah, America and Europe have a problem with massive illegal immigration. With the mass influx of migrants across our southern border, what is also coming in besides the migrant who might be looking to flee corruption and civil war, the U.S. Border Patrol has arrested 265 sex offenders, 576 individuals convicted of assault and 982 drug offenders, and there's over 2,700 people who have been arrested coming into the country illegally who have already been deported and they're coming back in. So, uh, you know, that's a huge thing. Just methamphetamines alone have skyrocketed, by, uh, seizures of methamphetamines skyrocketed by 91%. Cocaine seizures are up 26%. So, I mean, not only are migrants coming across the border, but criminal networks are using that to bring, to smuggle in people, to bring in terrorism. Uh, the number of uh, Middle Eastern males that are coming in with the people from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador is also up. Indeed, it basically presents to us a greater concern of narcotics and also the human trafficking factor, uh, but also the concerns about terrorism. If I'm not mistaken, two Yemeni citizens were actually on the terror watch list uh, that were arrested at the border. Uh, and the question that we all ask is that how many slipped through? So it is a concern on the southern border. Absolutely. And with the numbers that I just gave you, again, those were the ones that were intercepted. How much was it? With our guests on America's Roundtable Radio, we address the immigration as a public policy issue and the enforcement of laws from the U.S. side. Today, we would like to address illegal immigration from the perspective of the migrants and work that has been done by U.S. Department of Justice's Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Initiative and its main tool to seize the proceeds of corruption, which can be used in those countries from which migrants are massively leaving from. So migrants are moving out from economically distressed countries and or they are fleeing wars. 
The countries that migrants are leaving have high unemployment levels, low income levels, and high poverty. These are usually corruption-ridden countries with authoritarian regimes, mafia states, as well as certain war zone and organized crime regions. The Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Initiative was established in 2010 to curb high-level public corruption around the world. It is led by a team of Department of Justice prosecutors working in tandem with the FBI and other federal law enforcement agencies, and its mission is to forfeit the proceeds of corruption by foreign officials and, when appropriate, to use recovered assets to benefit the people who have been harmed. Deb, at FBI, you spearheaded the Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Initiative. Could you kind of share with us about your efforts and your accomplishments? It was a great honor to be part of the FBI's uh, Kleptocracy Initiative and to, to get it started. Some of that was location, location, location. I was a special agent in Washington, D.C., and Washington, D.C. had default venue when the crimes occurred outside of the United States, but the money moved through the United States. So frequently after a regime is overthrown or is elected out of office, the uh, country uh, reaches out to its foreign partners and tries to recover some of the stolen billions of dollars that were taken by the last regime. And when I uh, retired from the FBI in 2015, I had at least 10 cases in which countries were missing in excess of a billion dollars from the former regime. So the United States, through both our treaties with our foreign partners and the UN Convention Against Corruption, uh, we do partner with our foreign partners to try to recover the stolen money. So much of that money is stolen in U.S. dollars, and therefore it moves through our U.S. financial system and gives us the opportunity to try to seize those funds. If we put it in simpler terms, going into illegal immigration, illegal migrants are coming from those countries whose government officials are looting public coffers and siphon funds, which end up on anonymous accounts belonging to these same government officials and their family members with banks based in America and Europe, mostly. So while U.S. taxpayers are paying a high price of lawlessness that comes with illegal immigration, including high crime and terrorism, certain jurisdictions get awashed with stolen money, such as Liechtenstein, which has the highest per capita income in the world, amounting to over $180,000 in 2018, compared to the U.S., which had the per capita income of over $60,000, so three times less. Deb, what can America do to block these money laundering business models which perpetuate illegal immigration and harm American taxpayers? It's very interesting because you don't need to look any farther than Miami, right, or Florida, and see how much money has siphoned into the United States from, say, Venezuela from a, a kleptocratic regime in Venezuela. You can go online and see how many assets the FBI has already seized in the United States related to corruption out of Venezuela. And so similarly, as you said, in Liechtenstein, a lot of, of the illicit money flows out of kleptocratic regimes in Europe are being moved to and through Liechtenstein. There are several things that the U.S. could do. Some of it's already being done. I mean, there are investigations daily into the money flows of corrupt regimes, especially those that have already been overthrown or are currently not in um, power. 
it's very difficult to go after a corrupt country where the dictator is currently in power because that is the source of a great deal of the evidence, the root cause of a lot of the corruption. And therefore, the likelihood of getting evidence out of those countries is minimal. So uh, it, we often have much more success when a country has been overthrown and they are actively trying to recover their stolen money. Gambia is a, is a great example. Yahya Jamal was elected out a year and a half ago, or already a few years ago. And investigators in Gambia are trying to recover the stolen assets from the uh, Yahya Jamal regime. When Nigeria, when President Buhari was elected and good luck Jonathan and out of office, there's several previous administrations in Nigeria where the money was moving to the United States and also into Europe. At least $680 million of Sonny Abacha's money was recovered from banks around the world. So one of the things would be that NGOs, civil society, investigative journalists continue to work to expose that corruption, expose their lifestyles, where they're living, where are they offshoring their wealth, so that law enforcement and other agencies who have the ability to recover those assets and investigate know where to look, because we can't be looking everywhere all the time. Uh, the second would be the U.S. Uh, and international financial systems. Frequently, it's an excellent idea to have banking roundtables where the bankers of the major international correspondent banking systems can get together and say, "What?" and, and I'm sure they already do this, what trends are we seeing? If you looked at Nigeria in the months before President Buhari took office, there was a mass exodus of funds out of Nigeria. If you go back and you look at Ukraine before um, Yanukovych fled, then same thing. There was a mass exodus of money out of Ukraine because uh, people wanted to protect their own money. Very interesting how this impacts the U.S. Jinping, uh, you know, several years ago, made himself president for life. Well, in 2015, there was a surge of capital flight of money out of China. And at the time, there was a 70% increase of sales of properties in California to Chinese nationals. So a lot of that money is being driven into the U.S. real estate market. And what that actually does is it cuts a lot of Americans out of the market because they, they can't afford to pay cash over value for these properties. Interesting, Nigeria uh, in Dubai, several years ago, 40% of all luxury condominiums in Dubai were being purchased by Nigerians. And th that was part of the capital flight of money out of Nigeria. Indeed. Uh, Deborah, as you've highlighted some of these greater concerns here, the Financial Times highlighted a piece earlier this year on a UN high-level panel on financial integrity that issued a hard-hitting report that laid bare the enormous cost to public finances and economic efficiency from illicit financial flows to money laundering and bribery. And at this time when we are addressing COVID, especially in the developing world, I'd like to quote this piece from the Financial Times times. Just one egregious example. Tax evasion cost Lebanon's government revenue worth 10% of national income a year. And according to the report, the world's governments lose more than half a trillion dollars annually to tax maneuvers that circumvent the intentions of legislatures by exploiting loopholes and discrepancies in the law. As for blatant illegality, criminals launder more than $2 trillion every 
every year. Bribes amount to $1.5 to $2 trillion globally. And the harm to economic efficiency caused by such illegality is likely to be much greater than the ill-gotten gains themselves, unquote. And then reflecting on this Financial Times article, and as we look at the pandemic and the impact of it and the adverse impact of it in countries across the world, specifically in Africa or Latin America, for the developing world, we see how illicit financial outflows has impacted and bankrupted economies. Deb, are we seeing Western democracies, strong rule of law nations, stepping up and curbing this illicit financial flows? Mm -hmm. And have you seen steps over the past, say, five or 10 years uh, that show that we are on a upward trajectory, on a good path, or is there a lot more that needs to be done? Yes, to all of the above. In other words, yes, there is so much that is being done, but it's the number of people fighting the good fight versus the number of people participating in the bad fight. We are greatly outnumbered, right? There are like 183 countries in the world, and there are at least a, maybe 100 or more that place at 50 points or less out of 100 on Transparency International's perceived corruption index. So, I mean, there is illicit money flows from all over the world. You brought up Lebanon. I recently had the opportunity to speak to prosecutors and investigators in Lebanon, and Lebanon is missing $11 billion. And uh, that's from the former corrupt regime, and that collapsed their financial system. Years ago, Moldova lost a billion dollars in three days to corruption uh, and it strongly impacted their financial system because that was a big percentage of their gross domestic product. So, I mean, so much more needs to be done. But in this situation, the number of people involved in illicit money movements far outnumbers the number of people fighting it. Indeed, at the International Leaders Summit over the past uh, 15 years or so, we've been addressing the issues of significant U.S. taxpayer aid going to a lot of these countries that actually have high levels of illicit financial outflows. And uh, in fact, we have suggested through some of our policy work that it may be good to tie or actually put together restrictions saying that if American taxpayer dollars are to be sent to these countries that are noticing significant hemorrhage of their economies because of this illicit financial outflows, money coming out of these countries into Western banks, uh, perhaps we should mandate that there should be stricter measures in these countries or robust measures that connect, say, for example, the FBI or other legal authorities to address that and also to help recover some of this stolen money uh, so that in this case here, we're losing out on both sides. In fact, U.S. taxpayers are losing out on the side where we send corrupt governments uh, financial aid, and the citizens of these countries in the developing nations are losing their own taxpayer money uh, that is fleeing their countries. What are your thoughts about sort of tying it to some kind of a, a policy endeavor that says, well, we're going to give you money, but we do have some requirements as well? You know, that's a very interesting question because uh, often you don't want to tie any restrictions to U.S. aid going abroad because those individuals that are receiving the aid are not the, hopefully not the corrupt regime. However, there really does need to be incredibly strict guidance on what is the best way to send the aid. So it's not a wire transfer and it's not a check, right? Where that money, where maybe only 12% of the money gets to the people and the rest disappears. 
And I think the U.S. already does put a, a lot of transparency in place to make sure that doesn't happen. However, I think more needs to be done. And maybe uh, the aid needs to be in kind. In other words, if you're telling us that infant mortality is your greatest concern, then the money is going to Doctors Without Borders or it's going to other medical groups so that nobody's receiving cash, but you are receiving paid for doctors who are dealing with infant mortality. If it's starvation because your country's having a famine, then the food is being brought in and distributed so that the food doesn't isn't stolen by a warlord and then sold on the market. I mean, all these things, so it's so difficult to, once the aid or the, or the product gets in the foreign country to follow it and maintain it. But there has to be, the people that should be receiving the aids are not the people doing the corruption. So it's difficult to make sure that you're not hurting them while you're doing some type of restriction and uh, checks and balances to the corrupt individuals in charge. There, there are so many aspects, actually, of foreign corruption that affect Americans. And we mentioned illegal immigration. You mentioned about properties bought by Chinese coming into California, actually outspending or getting Californians out of market and American taxpayers not being able to pay the same price because they're coming with cash. We see the same developments in Europe where Chinese are coming with their government, state-owned companies, where there is no way American companies can compete, especially with American companies having very strict Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which rightfully so forbid payments to foreign officials in forms of bribes. So there are so many aspects of American taxpayers being affected by foreign corruption. So we have to find tools, and I know that you've been working on it. And one of the tools that is one of the more drastic measures that we've been talking about in the past was to remove dollar license from banks abroad, which are involved in money laundering for corrupt government officials. And that money flow, actually, if we can track it, if we can see which are the banks that are doing it massively and just pull our dollar license from them. Is that practice and how effective would that be? You know, that, that topic has been approached or addressed many times over the years and it creates a problem too. Because for example, say you have a US bank, which is one of the biggest uh, correspondents to an area that is high in corruption. There still has to be a mechanism by which people in other countries can send money home. And again, if I'm in South Sudan, no one outside of South Sudan wants South Sudanese pounds. So if I'm sending money home, it's got to be in U.S. dollars. So you don't want to necessarily uh, cut banks out of the financial system where, the again, the innocent people are affected. However, there have been so many bank scandals, Donk's Bank, HSBC, and, and several others over the last few years. And the penalties, although when you hear the amounts sound incredibly high, the reality is sometimes that's a few days of their income. So I think penalties, they have to look at maybe making penalties much more severe and also not just penalizing the bank itself, but the individuals. A bank doesn't commit a crime, a person commits a crime. There are people within that bank management who knowingly skirted sanctions or knowingly laundered money like Riggs Bank back in the day. They are now PNC Bank because after the scandal of laundering money for so many of the embassies, 
you know, they changed their name because it was now branded with corruption. So I think the penalties for banks involved in knowingly laundering money has got to be more severe, more of a painful experience for them. Um, Deb, you mentioned about how individuals are able to move cash and purchase property. In fact, in a recent published piece, there was this focus on, for example, Washington, D.C., just not too far away uh, from our offices. And uh, in fact, this quote that I'd like to share with you and get your response from that, I quote, In an apparent effort to bridge this gap, the Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network has issued temporary orders in targeted locations considered to be high risk for money laundering. In 2016, the agency ordered real estate title companies in some counties in California, New York, Florida, and Texas to report all cash property purchases over a certain amount. The most recent order, renewed earlier this year, required title companies in 12 U.S. metropolitan areas to identify individuals behind shell companies buying property with cash. Washington, D.C. is not on that list, unquote. And it appears that if you pay cash, there's no rules whatsoever in certain jurisdictions. Now, Deb, from your own experiences at the FBI, what would you suggest to elected officials and leaders at the state and perhaps county levels to step up and address this growing problem right in their backyard by perhaps enacting greater transparency and holding to account foreign corrupt politicians that are moving the theft from their own countries to America's cities. I absolutely think that there should be a requirement for both real estate agents and title companies to know their customer. They are, in fact, a financial institution. Uh, Money is moving through them. And it's interesting because certain activities have been given in the past uh, a pass, uh, yacht brokers, aircraft brokers, and real estate agents. And the reality is we know that illicit funds are used to purchase yachts, aircraft, and uh, luxury properties. So they should not be given a pass. They should have to know their customer and report a suspicious activity and large, unusual cash transactions. And uh, that would go a long way to shoring up the financial purchase of properties with illicit funds from foreign countries. And another aspect of money laundering that is enabled actually by offshore companies is that these anonymous accounts are structured in a complex manner by using multiple offshore companies registered in British Virgin Islands, Cayman Islands, Panama, and could also have been registered anonymously in Delaware and Wyoming in order to move illicit financial flows undetected. So uh, how we done any progress in dismantling these anonymous offshore companies within the U.S. and what can be done about it? I will tell you, uh, yes, there has been great progress in the last year. The FACT Coalition has done an excellent job at bringing this to the forefront in, on Capitol Hill. And I do believe within the last year or so, there has been new legislation that will go towards transparency in shell corporations in the United States. Within the last year, they have been very successful at pushing for transparency in U.S. shell corporations, because it's kind of embarrassing if we're talking to the BBI, Caymans, and other places saying, you should clean up your act and you know not be a, a haven for shell corporations, when in fact, in a day, you could get a, a Delaware corporation or a Nevada, Wyoming, and several of the others. What's very interesting is I had a case when I was with the Bureau 
where there was an individual who had incorporated a company, an organ company that was used to commit a fraud in the Ukraine. And I reached out to the uh, registered agent for that organ company. And I said, who contacted you and asked you to incorporate this company? He's like, oh, a service provider out of Belarus. And I said, well, how many companies have you incorporated for them? He goes, oh, 1,956. I mean, so there's 1,956 U.S. companies uh, that are being used for what purpose? Because they're not, you, you know, they're not here in the United States. And that's one person already. That was seven, eight years ago. But it calls into question how many other registered agents in the United States like that person has incorporated Delaware, Nevada, Wyoming, Oregon companies for uh, foreign corrupt individuals. Right. And they don't disclose the names, correct? No, they don't. That's why they go to those specific five states is because they uh, don't require it. And sometimes they're just nominee shareholders. They're listed as directors, but they have actually no ownership interest in the company. Deborah, your concluding thoughts on what the ordinary, decent, hardworking American taxpayer citizen can do, and also state legislators and those involved in various counties can do to support efforts that create greater transparency. What would you suggest to them at a practical level that they can also get involved in actually advancing principal efforts uh, that make our world much safer and also help individuals in other countries that are going through difficult situations because of of corruption and illicit financial outflows. I hate to go back, I guess, to the uh, terrorism days where we the motto was, if you see something, say something. Indeed. But, uh, right. If you are living in Miami and you know that down the street there is a mansion owned by a narcotics trafficker, call local law enforcement if you have evidence to support that, if it's not just a rumor. Or uh, talk to the local, whoever's on the crime beat at the, at the newspaper. And there are uh, investigative journalists around uh, the United States who focus on things like illicit flows of money into the United States. Find them. They're online. Contact them and say, did you know I, there's these five properties in New York that are owned by Russian oligarchs? A few years ago, it was either the New York Times or the Financial Times, but they had a great article about the Time Warner building. And how I think, you know, there was over a hundred condos in the building in the name of LLCs. And uh, they did their homework and found that one was a Sinaloa cartel member, one was a Russian oligarch, and one was someone else. So expose it, uh, get it out there, and provide that information to law enforcement. Mm. Indeed. We are delighted and honored to have Deborah Laprovod join us on America's Roundtable this weekend. And Deborah has served in the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, she served there for over 20 years, and she served as a supervisory special agent on the International Corruption Unit at FBI headquarters and was instrumental in initiating the FBI's kleptocracy program. Deborah traced and seized more than $1 billion from foreign corrupt officials, and she spent the past 23 years working international corruption investigations. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you both. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adinsami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. 
America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.